Welcome to Polycast, a civilization podcast focused on game strategy. Dan Q. Makalua. The Man Team. Mega Bears Fan. With guest co-host, Martin Alvino. We just lose Phil. Um. <laughs> yes, Kazunte. Yes, yes, we did lose Phil. Oh, damn it! <laughs> I forgot. I don't have Skype set up to uh, mute on that button. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I thought Mackie was upset that Phil dropped from the call, but apparently it doesn't phase her at all. Well, now we know. <laughs> it's the internet. How many times on this podcast we play technical difficulties? I mean, come on. It's true. Go live button. Phil drops. <laughs> Oh, I was going to say, you push it right as I sneeze. That would even be funnier. He dropped before you sneezed, although it feels internet connection was anticipating the sneeze from Texas. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to blow out the Florida internet by sneezing, yeah. Welcome to Polycast, episode number 309. I'm Mega Bears fan with your other hosts, Dan Q. I'm back. Makalua. I will try to sneeze less the rest of this podcast. You're welcome. The me and team. Bendy. Thing to the will. And our guest co-host, Martin. I'm on vacation in Texas. It's 100 degrees outside. What am I doing here? <laughs> Ew. Ah, he is and correct. It is supposed to be 101 later. Ah. You can come to Florida where it is wetter, but not necessarily hotter. Gosh, there are so many things that could be said in response to that. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> the buzzing in the chat. One of our guests in the last episode says, staying inside, trying not to be cooked alive, question mark. Well, the question is, if you're being cooked alive inside, how do you want to be cooked? Is that baked, fried, or steamed? Well done. Well done. Well, well judging done. from the way the sidewalk usually feels when I walk outside the past week or so, it would be baked. I the suppose if you went for the hood of a car, you could fry one. You just start to melt the second you step outside, basically. Oh, like <laughs> in space quests. I'm always reminded of the Fit and Family Guy where the uh, pigeon just spontaneously explodes in the air. That's how I feel when I walk outside. That's right. Just when you thought spontaneous combustion couldn't be mentioned on a Civ podcast, you were wrong. Has been the tech in the Civ series. Oh, you just have to spontaneously attain the tech, and you have spontaneous combustion. Been there all along. I thought that's what global warming was. <laughs> no, that's something else. That's desert fairy magic, I believe. <laughs> spontaneous world combustion. Your unit moves on to the third consecutive uh, desert hex. Spontaneously combusts. Or better yet, just you know, loses a turn because it, it oh, stayed yeah. too long on a head desert hex. Even better. L- let's go back to that big uh, that suggestion where deserts are huge and they become impassable. That'll be great for movement on the board. I do like the idea though. Just if the map were properly scaled, yeah, yeah, we we need more tiles for it. But it, I would love if the map had more stuff like that. Remember, beyond Earth, before you reach a certain technology, if you ended your turn on a hex with miasma, you would lose. Uh, Health there, you could do that if you're stuck in the desert. You're too hot or you're stuck in the ice, you're too cold. Especially if you're a warrior wandering around with a loincloth. I mean, really, at some point, frostbite's going to hurt. The warrior would do better in the desert as opposed to the I, ice. I wonder if the AI would handle it better than it handled the Maya's, but I bet not. <laughs> it would not. No. Just how low can your health go? Oh, to death. Oh, well, now we yeah. know. <laughs> yeah, there's a floor on that value, actually, it turns out. <laughs> But I was fortified to heal. You, 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 I, no.
Noto2 is asking, do people actually like Eurekas and Inspirations? He says he's probably put close to 10,000 hours into this Civ franchise from 2 to 5. He's been playing Civ since he was 14. He's 34 now. Well, that's a lot of us, about 20 years into Civ. He owns Civ 6, but he's only put about 10 hours into it. Well, okay, I see problem one right there. (laughs) (laughs) Enough to play one game and beat it on Immortal uh, as China. The Eureka Inspiration System. He's annoyed that it's in an all, let alone made it such a huge part of the game. It's functioning basically to switch your inputs from just raw science into various things going to science, right? Like in most cases, because there are a few exclusives, but for the most part, Eureka's and inspirations are things you can consistently work to get if you invest in it. Yeah, I like Um, the general idea of basically rewarding you for your actions in game. I just think that some of the specific Eurekas and inspirations are a bit annoying. Yeah. And I actually, I actually kind of feel like what they should do is instead of having one big Eureka for each tech that gives you like 50 or 40% of the tech, maybe split it up so there's maybe like three of them or four of them that each give you 10%, a bunch of different ways for you to get those bonuses. So it's not like an all or nothing thing. Yeah, because that's one of his complaints is that he feels like you're being forced to do these dumb rote tasks over and over to get like optimum gameplay. Right. There's a lot of them that are early that a lot of us will just ignore anyway, because sometimes by the time you have the time to research that tech, you can just blow through it and you don't need the Eureka. Right. The tech's going to take me one turn to research anyway. I don't need the Eureka for it anymore. But yeah, and the- rote tasks. Oh my gosh. I'm also very much against rote tasks, but when you compare it to the other things that are in Civ 6, it's a relatively tiny portion. Like, even if you try to hit every Eureka, especially once you know what they are and you're just doing them, yeah, it's rote tasks. So is moving units. And And they're the same every game. Moving units or even trader. Nowhere close. There's a lot that you're just going to do as you're playing naturally. Build two slingers to get a discount to archery. Okay. I need them because of barbs. I don't think there's very many that ask you to go out of your way out of things you would normally do during gameplay to get them. Well, when I first started playing, I was building warriors because I thought slingers were crap. But then I actually started consistently just pumping out those first three slingers very early in the game just to get that Eureka. And then the upgrade to archers was cheap. And then I'd have three archers for the crossbow Eureka. Some of those things do slightly change the way that I approach certain aspects of the game. I think my biggest issue with it, though, is that they're the same every single game. I think one of the suggestions in this thread is to maybe randomize them. I don't know if that those people actually want them to be invisible to the player. So the player doesn't know what triggers them until they actually trigger them. I don't know if I would like that, but I could definitely see a system where you have a pool of possible Eurekas and every game it selects a different set of Eurekas for all the different techs and civics so that each game is a little bit different and you're not doing the same rote tasks every single game. Because, you know, a lot of it does end up feeling like it's just a bunch of like checklist busy work that the game expects you to do in order to be efficient at technology. Because the fact that it is worth almost half of the tech tree is a really big deal. Like not pursuing inspirations and Eurekas at all is going to significantly handicap your progress through the game. Gosh, though, compared to the rote tasks in general, like what are Eureka's adding, especially if you discount the ones like Mackie said that you're doing anyway. We're, we're talking maybe five minutes out of several hour playthrough, as opposed to like some of the broken UI elements that make you lose over an hour of gameplay uh, per game. It's certainly an issue. But it's, it's so small compared to the usual issues when I complain about this. I do agree that they get a little bit bland in that sense, though. I, I'm absolutely against hiding uh, what they are. 
However, randomizing them could be interesting because it would be yet another thing like the map generation itself that you would play around then because you would have a different uh, source them each time. So you have to think about how you approach it. But you'd want them to make sense. I I think it would be hard to do, but I'd like to see it if they could do it. Well, one thing that they could do for a lot of the texts that unlock units and stuff like that, I think a pretty obvious idea for a possible Eureka inspiration, especially if you're going to split it up into multiple things that give you smaller chunks, is if an enemy uses that unit against you, you get a Eureka towards that tech. You've got an army full of iron swords and somebody rolls up with a bunch of musketmen and literally blows all your units away. Your scientists are probably going to be thinking, hey, you know what? This gunpowder thing actually seems like a pretty good idea. I would not mind having some randomized Eurekas if they made sense in context of the tech. I don't want just random things you do to be why you got a Eureka. Yeah, and I do think that it, it, you know they could have two or three of them as well, giving you small chunks instead of just one big all-or-nothing thing. I mean, on the randomization thing, as long as that's known to the player. Okay, in this particular game, sailing, I'm not founding a city on the coast is not going to give me the boost. It's going to be, I don't know, find a natural wonder. Okay. Fine, but that's known to the player when you go to the technology tree, and of course the technology tree for the Eurekas and the civics tree for inspirations. The thing about having it kind of chunked in terms of, okay, this will give you a 10% boost, it'll give you a 20% boost, you can have one, you can have the other, you can have both. I think the only issue with that potentially would just be the game speed scaling, particularly at at certain points. But as long as you've got that in mind, you can work that so that works out. I think it's kind of one of those things when you look at when you're going for a particular technology, I don't think the thought should be, hmm, hey, uh, if I found a city on the coast, then I'm going to get a boost to sailing necessarily as, you know what, it would be advantageous for me to settle on the coast because I'm surrounded by water. I know that this is a water map. I want to see how much water is on the map. Okay, what do I have to do for that? Okay, if I actually found a city on the coast, I'm going to get the benefit to sailing. Okay, what is it that I'm going to get as a result of sailing? Hey, I can construct a galley. I can start exploring the shores beyond what it is that I can do by founding a city on the coast. Because the buzzing in the chat says, I think that these Eurekas and Inspirations are good for helping anyone experience know where to go on the tech tree. I think it's possible for those to distract players as well. Got to watch it, and that comes with experience and in playing the game that, hey, guess what? I'm able to get this technology in six turns instead of ten. That's great. But while you're spending those six turns researching that technology after you get the Eureka Boost, probably should be going for something else depending upon your game circumstance. So I think there's definitely room for the randomization aspect. If you can find that, if it's perhaps a bit more of an incremental boost, things that you would be doing anyway, I wouldn't want it to be completely random, as it was said. I wouldn't want it to just be, well, I'm going to be doing this anyway, so therefore I get a boost, because then it just becomes roach. You're not really thinking about the Eureka at all. But honestly, you could go through the entire game and not pay attention to this purposely at all, which in and of itself might be worth looking at, that no, you're going to feel early on, mid-game, later game, if you do not take advantage of at least some of these, it's going to hurt you. And depending upon the difficulty level you're playing, for example, in single player, I think you'll feel that more than otherwise. But I don't feel that this is a big part of the game simply because you can't ignore it and you can do fine. How many times is it, oh, hey, uh, apparently I got the boost for that. Oh, I I wasn't going for that. Uh, I got the game notification for that. Uh, That's great. Onward I go. Yeah, N.C. Campbell, further down in the thread, is sort of on the same page with you that he, he actually does like the Eureka's things. He disagrees that they don't affect replayability because no one's actually seemed to agreed on any sort of optimal way through the tech tree. 
but the, he says they add another dimension by dragging him off what his plan was. He was going to do Y, but there's these other competing priorities. You also got the mini quests from the research trees and the things from the city states. And so you don't go exactly that way, but they're also immersive. It's part of the game. Yeah, I do like that it gives you different things that you need to prioritize. And I do like someone brought up the aspect of it acting like almost as a little tutorial for new players to be like, oh, I've already got half that tech finished for some reason. Let me go ahead and keep researching it because it's going to give me something that's useful. Cairo in the thread said that he doesn't like them because they devalue the power of investing in cultural scientific output by making them only about half as advantageous. Uh, I kind of view it as the other way. No, it's, it's the power of investing in your output and you're doing it smartly it shouldn't just be as i said oh i want to always research this tech or once i complete this action now i've got the eureka i should immediately switch what i'm doing in order to get that technology it's just there's a connection to your action and that particular technology such as hey you found a city on the coast hmm i wonder what else is out there hmm this sailing thing that our scientists are talking about it gives them a little bit more <laughs> inspiration, to borrow the civic term, and they're able to research it that much faster. Similarly to, like you said, Jason, you get schmucked by a bunch of musketmen, and scientists say, hey, now that you've actually seen it in action, could we go ahead and research it ourselves? So the connection that's there, I think in some respects, perhaps it would be helpful for an inexperienced player for the notification to be more obvious. I mean, as experienced players, I think, well, I mean, I like it off in the lower right-hand corner, but perhaps can set you know, tutorial levels for new players that you could actually get an on-screen dialogue and say, you realize by completing this action, you have been successful in boosting the research to this technology. Click here to research that technology. So it helps you to learn the game, but it's not just about going off all these different tangents so you're ping-ponging back and forth between Eurekas and Inspirations. I think it comes down to the mechanic itself is fine. I'm not thinking for the most part that we need to necessarily change what the Eureka boosts are, because if you always know that if I found a city on the coast, I'm going to get the boost to sailing, the question is, is it advantageous for me to do that right now? Because I want to found a city on the coast. To a certain extent, I get where he's coming from, just in the, the cynic in me has always said that the purpose of the Eureka system is so that we can basically double the amount of beakers that are needed to get something. And uh, by permitting any given player to convert, it essentially hammers into beakers by taking advantage of the Eurekas. You're advantaging the computer in that on the higher difficulty levels, the computer gets very large hammer bonuses, and therefore it's going to tend to trip the Eurekas itself anyway, where the player has to make meaningful decisions about which things to actually focus on and when. But at the same time, the advantage of the system is that you are constraining the player to say, hey, in addition to all these other mechanics that I'm dealing with, I have to make some decisions about which of these Eurekas am I going to focus on in order to progress through the tech tree in the way that I need to. So it's a system that does throw up a barrier to the player that hasn't been in previous civs, and I can see how it would be a little off-putting to a new player. But at the same time, if you agree with what Soren Johnson said ages ago, that the whole point of civ is to force the player to make meaningful decisions, then this is a good way to do it. I'm just thinking, like, this is actually not that easy a system on the AI, even with bonuses, because you have to, like, sometimes plan ahead to research some technologies before other technologies in order to take advantage of all the Eurekas, which will ultimately speed up your research rate. And yet sometimes it's not good because maybe you're delaying a military attack, which you could use to conquer somebody right now. This type of evaluation isn't so easy for the AI. If it's just, like, brute force unit production or something, sure, but some of the Eurekas aren't like that, really. I know one of the strategies that I usually use is if there's a tech or civic that I know I probably could get the Eureka inspiration pretty soon, but not right now, but I want that tech as soon as possible. I'll research the first half of it and then switch to something else 
while I pursue the Eureka and then just instantly pop it once the Eureka is completed. Yeah. I do, yeah, I I do that, that all the time, but I'm pretty sure the AI is not going to do that. So the AI might be like, oh, I'm going to research sailing because I want to start building some boats at the same time that they're sending their settler off to get that first coastal city. And there have been many games also where I've had to save scum because I accidentally forgot to switch text. Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> It's about the map, until it isn't. This thread comes to us from a clue without. Ed Beach and the Fraxis team succeeded with Civilization VI. You now play the map when you play Civ. There's no longer one path to victory. Instead, the best path is determined by your territory. But where Ed and the team succeeded, they also failed. The failure of Civ is that after the classical era, the map just doesn't matter anymore, quote-unquote. He then goes in to describe what interacting with the map looks like, doesn't look like, should look like, or shouldn't look like, from the early game to the mid-game to the late game. Such as at the early game, you have meaningful competition over territory, you're rushing to settle open territory, and the territory you settle, capture, or lose is meaningful. The competition matters because the territory matters. But the mid-game should be about warring states constantly fighting to hold off their home borders and expanding them by taking land from other major and minor civilizations. But as the mid-game progresses, it should also be about expanding your empire to foreign shores and the start of basically colonialism. But Civ doesn't deliver that, even after Rise and Fall. There may be still some border skirmishes in the mid-game, but Warmongering 2 makes conquests hard by turning everyone against you. But if border wars are limited, then sadly expanding to foreign shores is almost non-existent. The mid-game should be when you're setting sail, exploring and discovering new cultures which for you to conquer or learn from or assimilate. And these colonies should provide the potential for great rewards. And that doesn't happen. Instead, if you do venture abroad, you either find great swathes of uninhabited land or other civs usually at the same tech level as you. There are no alien cultures, no technologically inferior people resisting your imperial conquest, and there's very little return on your investment anyway. These late cities are unlikely to pay for themselves, and there's no real special benefit for settling abroad, bar for certain civs, for example, Spain. You're better just staying at home and running projects. And then he talks about essentially where the late game, he says, yes, there might be wars and territory borders might be changing hands, but save for maybe some old colonial empires fragmenting, usually nations and their core territory stay broadly the same, and what matters is who is in charge of these nations and who they are loyal to. But there's none of that. By the late game, there are only the same major civs from the start of the game, minus a few who have been eliminated, and some remaining city-states. Hmm. It's a tough problem to solve. Having the Terra map from Civ Four would help with that because you actually would have another continent that'd be full of nothing but just barbarians. I'm not sure I believe that, given how it played out in Civ Four. Well, true, but <laughs> I mean, it's something that at least can happen in that context on that map. It's something that doesn't happen at all in most maps, and a big part of that is because of you know the balance and parity between civs. Don't have the poster said a situation where some European colonial civ goes to a new continent and finds a bunch of, for lack of a better phrase, lesser developed civilizations that they can easily conquer, you go to the other continent and you usually find civilizations that are on par with you. We're playing from 4000 BC. You have to make the more advanced civilization. (laughs) They don't just happen. (laughs) Well, right. But the point is that in most games, civilizations that are on different continents generally grow and develop at about the same pace. So you get to the other continent, you usually find somebody who's about on par with you, maybe like an era behind. But it's not a situation where you've got the Spanish coming to the Americas, guns and stuff like that, and finding the Aztecs and the Incas that are trying to beat them over the head with obsidian clubs. 
let's not get into the impact of disease and all this. <laughs> yeah, that played a big factor as well. But that's also something that was the civilization... central reason that was possible compared yeah, to like well, Africa. And that's something that the civilization games just don't model at all. Like you cannot do that sort of quote unquote biological warfare. You don't have the Mongols putting plague victims in catapults and launching them over city walls and <laughs> stuff like that. The time scale just makes that kind of uh, fighting awkward. Well, it, it does. And those are things that are, you know, that might very well just be intractable within type of game that civilization is. But so what? Try to win the game or go to war or both, because that's really the only yeah, functional I, way the game balances tune. So just right, go to war I, and start killing people. I definitely agree, though, with the poster in the sense that the game, I don't think, does enough to give the players and the civs reason to go out of their comfort zone. There's also a certain level of risk aversion in a game of Civ because any losses that you take are really significant. I think Civ 5 made a really good step forward with the strategic resource supply where it wasn't just a matter of having resources or not having them. You actually had to fight to acquire more resources. I think Civ 5 just gave you too many of most of the resources so that fighting for more of them was rarely ever an issue. And I feel like Civ 6 definitely regressed in that because now you just need the one or two copies of a strategic resource and you're set for the game. You never need to acquire more. And in general, that European colonialism was driven in part by the need to and the desire to acquire new resources, both strategic resources that would be used for warfare and also luxuries and things to generate wealth. And that's something that's just kind of not in the game. It's too easy to just trade your excess for someone else's excess. You don't ever have to go out really and get it. Mm, I, <laughs> if you start introducing this, though, you could run into a problem similar to what Civ Five had, and but even worse, where the larger nations just have access to more units than the smaller nations can handle. And given their production advantage already, I hesitate to make that the particular constraint mechanic as opposed to other things. Yeah, well, like I said, it's a difficult issue to solve. But like I said, the, right now, I think Civ Six, I, I think, is a little too easy to turtle. I don't think there are enough pressures being put on players. The incentive to... for offensive warfare is overwhelming. <laughs> if anybody is winning, you have the greatest incentive a game can offer in order to stop them, to attack them. Well, that's because true. Because if but you don't, you lose. But I mean, at least in my experience, that's something that does not come up until well after the parts of the game that this post is talking about. That's true. There's way too much time between when everything is settled and... Yeah, uh, and we've talked about this numerous times. The game is basically decided by the medieval or renaissance era, but then you've just got to go through the motion clicking next turn until through the modern and information eras in which very little actually happens until, oh, look, that guy's starting to build the spaceship parts. Better go conquer him because there's nothing else that I can do to stop him from achieving that mutually exclusive victory. And you're not really pushing for victories in the medieval or renaissance era. So there's really nothing that really is forcing you to take that action now as opposed to just continuing to turtle and taking it later. And if you are militarily inferior to that other player, then again, the risk aversion is a big part of it too, where you don't want to risk losing anything because that sets you back significantly and strengthens the other player. I think part of what a clue without is not so much that he's getting at, but I think the symptom where he talks about you find great swaths of uninhabited land, part of that is just the placement of civs on the map. And we've seen this in our cooperative turncast games, where it's, okay, let's say it's continents, there's two different continents, 
by continents, I do mean two distinct land masses, not Civ six quote unquote continents discussion, unless we get into that again. <laughs> but it's okay. Three are all clustered such that not only are they on the same continent, but they're clustered in the same part of the continent. You know, on a standard size map, online speed, within 20 turns, you have met two other players. Their capitals are within 10 hexes of you and each other. And then there's one other person off by themselves. And that one person off by themselves, they're not even going to have to go to another continent to find this land that's completely uninhabited. And while they get bigger and bigger and bigger with really little to no opposition in terms of their ability to expand, nothing to kind of check and balance their power while the other three are battling it out, I think that's part of the issue as well. The other thing where he talks about that there's very little return on your investment, that these late cities are unlikely to pay for themselves, and there's no special benefit for settling abroad, a bar for certain cities, for example, Spain. In the chat, the buzzing says we're missing to make something like this work is a much deeper concept of trade where there is a huge resource income from international trade with your foreign cities. And I'm going to add to kind of what you were saying, Jason, where in Civilization V, the introduction of specific, with not with the resources, but the quantifiable, it's like, okay, I've got X number of sources of iron, X number of sources of oil. I need to go out and get more to manage more territory, to defend my territory from somebody else. There is the acquisition. So it's combination of getting you know resource diversification and also more copies of that particular resource as you continue to use them, as you continue to grow okay, here's my incentive to go out. Here's my incentive to go out and settle those cities. Here's my incentive to build those cities to combat whoever else is on this continent. And because I'm engaging in that kind of next phase of exploring, okay, I found them, you know, I'm trying to exploit the land, you know, exterminate, all of that then can shift to the next phase, which also then ties into the comment about we get to the Renaissance, medieval era, and the game's decided. That could absolutely shift when you have comparable powers from different parts of the map now vying for that spot where that third Civ is, who may or may not be technologically inferior, which then opens up questions of diplomacy. Maybe that third Civ can try to, try to leverage themselves and trade with both Civs so that they don't attack them, and then maybe they can sneak in another type of victory other than being dominated by one power or the other. But I think it really starts with, because I think it would be interesting to then look at this again, if we can just start with something as simple as having the map spawning be more consistent. Buzzing in the chat says, it should be noticed that pretty much never use all the land on the map in a game, though. You grab the best land early, and low-value land may never be claimed. Well, when you say claimed, claimed does not necessarily mean settled. I don't think that, oh, we need to find a way to make absolutely every single hex on the map be worthwhile to settle in terms of a city, but hopefully at some point the land would be valuable for some particular reason, whether it was because it was for a resource, I'm not settling there for a huge city, I need this particular resource, I don't have it, I don't have enough of this resource, I'm having it. It becomes a choke point, even though the rest of the land is not good, or even as we've talked about setting up colonies before so that you can acquire the benefit of that without having to put the investment into, for example, a settler and then trying to defend that city and hold on to it, that you just set up a colony. It's more straightforward. You send a unit there to defend it or what have you. But yeah, this is not any one thing that we do to try to address this, which you know has a ripple effect, which isn't to say that, oh, well, because it has a ripple effect, it isn't worth addressing it. The opening poster's comment about it's the map until it isn't, I think it becomes less about what the map is as the game goes on as compared to what the players do or do not do with that particular map. Like, oh, 
I could go and I could settle this land. This land is fabulous to settle. But if I go and do that, then I'm either not constructing units to go take out this person who's going to win a religious victory, or I'm not investing in my scientific infrastructure to try to beat this person to the space race victory. I don't know if that in and of itself is a big issue, but it's definitely something that could be improved upon. And and the AI, the, the question about, you know, does the artificial intelligence use this well or not? Well, it's, <laughs> we do have to look at that at absolutely any consideration. Even if all you do is play multiplayer, Civilization VI is first and foremost a single-player game. We know that that's how the majority of people play that. So, yes, the AI definitely comes into question. But I think it also begins with, you know, if the human player isn't able to make use of of this map and use this map well, however we define use, then it's not going to be good for the AI either. Perhaps we should continue on to speaking about bad for maps. Time for a terminology change, question mark, from uh, Traveling Canuck. We're bringing back the cancer concept yet again in talking about tall versus wide. But this post asserts that the gameplay is switched from tall versus wide to peace versus war and uh, suggests dropping the terminology. I, <laughs> this game isn't about either of those things, though, because like the, the incentives in this game are overwhelmingly for war, <laughs> as has come up in the thread later on. But in the opening uh, posts, he was highlighting some mechanics that benefit peace versus war, and there are certainly more mechanics that benefit war than expected, and perhaps over-incentivize it. In other words, like the defenders put at some disadvantages that don't really need to be there, I guess, is what he's saying. And to some extent, I guess that's true. I, I just don't want to see the meta shift too much into turtling, though, because that's not a good place for the game. You may have had a few things to say in this thread about it, Phil, which may or may not have influenced my deciding to give it to you to introduce. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure. Really? But that tends to happen when I start spamming a thread, I wind up introducing it. <laughs> I've noticed that pattern. And I think it also came up in the thread the... When we talk about peace versus war, it's not necessarily conquest or complete conquest, as in you're going for a domination victory. It could just be simply war to, although this, I don't think this specifically came up with a thread. Oh, I see you're trying to pursue a science victory. Hmm, you have five cities. Three of them have spaceports. I'm either going to go in and I'm going to take those cities that have spaceports. I'm going to go and I'm going to pillage them. I'm going to send in a spy to disable that production. So the war effort, again, is not necessarily to wipe you off the map, but to try to get you to stop doing any type of victory condition, that there is some measure of war, either you going on the offensive or you being on the defensive. And because of, yes, all of the mechanics that benefit war, sometimes your best defense is an offense. Maybe more accurately, more often than not, it is your... <laughs> oh, and if someone's threatening to win the game and your only path is to fight them, you should fight them. That's a major flaw that Civ 6 does that just refuses to address because the AI won't do this. That that has come up later in the thread that you know, AI is single player and it's not a player or whatever. But in my mind, what this is doing, and I'm going to call the devs a bit on that, I know, but it's masking your bad design by making the AI throw, ultimately. This actually came up on the previous episode as well, because someone decided to optimize the AI and it just made everyone go for city tradition in Civ 5 and not attack each other. And like, well, OK, if that's not a mistake by the person programming and that's literally the best strategy in order to win, how is this not an indictment on your design? Like, if that's the best way to play, if that's what gives you a victory consistently, like if it's not changing game to game, you have a problem. 
and that's a problem in this game too. A lot of the victory conditions are pseudo victory conditions because they're contingent on people not trying in order to be viable. You will never see them in multiplayer. Yes, this is a single player game, but if you actually have good balance, then these other victory conditions would be threatening, both in single player and multiplayer. But that's not what's happening. So this is a game that's first programmed as a war game and then has an AI put on that doesn't act like it's a war game in order to allow people to win victories other than war. And you're always going to have this disconnect as long as the tuning is this way. The only way you are going to, as Civilization VI is right now, and really sift to this point, that you are going to eliminate war being something that's advantageous is to have what, for example, Civilization IV had, but I don't remember seeing it before or since, and it was a little checkbox that said, always peace. <laughs> always peace. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> well, then the land you start with would matter a great deal, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you can have some you got served contests with culture flipping and now with uh, loyalty, that kind of stuff. But, espionage, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Well, espionage could shut down space races, but it wouldn't do very much against religion or uh, culture by comparison. I mean, you could to a degree, but it, not nearly as much as space. It's not as direct. Yeah. This is a lot of hammers concentrated in very few things, yep. whereas uh, the others, much less so. Yeah, I wonder what the meta would be in PvP in all these peace. That would, that would be fascinating. <laughs> hey guys, I'm going for time victory. <laughs> I, I doubt like time. it. I'm pretty sure people would find a way to win. And as to the opening poster, Traveling Connect, you know, time to retire Tall versus Wide to Peace versus War. Tall versus Wide in Civ Five was a thing. Peace versus War is a question that you could ask in any Civilization title to this point, and the answer is war. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like, nothing has changed. Uh, it's just, Tall versus Wide was insular to Civilization V, and hopefully that's where it remains, because it was tested and tried, and it was demonstrated how it cripples the 4X in a 4X game. But I don't know what the question is about something versus something, and perhaps it's a good thing, actually, in my mind, that I can't think of in Civilization VI, specific to Civilization VI, just like Civilization One through Four. is it one thing versus something else? It doesn't have to be one or the other to then funnel into whether or not you're going to achieve one of the victory conditions. I think that itself is a measure of, well, if not good game design, certainly better game design as opposed to in a game that's supposed to be a strategy game that's spanning the test of time, that there's more than two possible approaches or it comes down to only two possible approaches that make any sense consistently. No, and within the context of those approaches, the play is often the same, too. Because even if you're expanding a lot in Civ 6, that's not necessarily the case. Well, in Civ 5, the beakers in the tech tree put a lot of hard constraints on the player, which tended to lead towards, you know, very one-dimensional, this is how you optimize, this is how you get up the tech tree as fast as possible gameplay, where here you've got something that's a bit more like Civ 4 and that's a little bit more open-ended. Yeah. And people do complain that even Civ 6 isn't open-ended enough. It's not an easy problem to fix, I admit that. And even Civ 4 wasn't, really. I, how many DD games deviated from a path where you would just rush science through uh, towards liberalism? You got it sometimes, especially with tech trading off, but it wasn't super common. Well, yeah, you were forced to basically get a tech lead somewhere so you could tech whore your way up to you know staying with parity. Yeah. Or at least capture more cities with a temporary advantage one way or another. Yeah, sort of like getting cavalry early or something like that. Yeah, cavalry or draft rifles are certainly the most common. You saw some medieval war sometimes, too. Very rarely, though. The more I think about it, you know, something versus something, 
I don't think it's on the same scale as tall versus wide, but in Civ 6, it almost feels like gold versus production. Okay, we talked about this before. Although it's, it's better than it used to be, it's not quite so strong as gold now, and that was even before the Rise and Fall expansion, when there were certain things that were introduced, like, for example, envoys with commercial city-states. No, it's not gold just for every commercial hub that you have. It's for every market, and then for every bank, etc. That also combined with the, some of the policy cards that you could play, that it would only give you a boost to gold, as well as the science one, too. They kind of kind of tagged along with that. That, no, you had to have at least pop 10 in order to take advantage of that. And then that was like 50% worth. Gold versus production is something that I think about a lot more in Civ Six as compared to just peace versus war. That's just kind of a given in the game. And to me, it's not always peace or always war. It's when to peace and when to war and with whom, which is... I'm glad that that's actually the question. And that's not always one or the other, and it's not rinse and repeat next to regardless of how you start the game. But, uh... <sighs> you can use both gold and production, though. Oh, yes. Because you can run, like, the uh, centralized industrial zone pushing that all out. <laughs> With one of what used to be industrial zones everywhere spreading their six-hex ridiculousness to everything else, you can still do that in one spot while benefiting from the gold everywhere else on top of it. It's easier to say, well, my production is crap, let's go with gold production, as opposed to, well, my gold output is crap, let's go with production. I mean, you could just gate more things on not being able to buy them, although as long as you can buy units, you're probably going to get smaller outcomes, I suppose. Yes, that's fine. Oh, what's that? I can't buy buildings? That's okay, I'll just buy units and take your cities that have the buildings, and therefore I now have the buildings too. Thanks. Or maybe instead of just outright buying something, maybe you spend the gold to buy a production bonus or something like that on the thing. Well, if you're doing so that, you can a, just make the purchases more expensive, too, until buying all that stuff is prohibitive yeah. for, the, for the given gold level. Or you can yeah. just reduce the gold income. It all has the same event, uh, result, ultimately. Yeah, if you're trying to measure how rich somebody is, you don't just look for how much money they're making. You also look at how much money they're spending. Yeah, but rather than going to like fractional hammers, you might as well just make the units <laughs> cost more because that's simpler to implement and understand. Yeah. They devalue gold, so... I, I was just kind of trying to think of a way where you would spend the gold, but then your hammer output was still relevant as opposed to it just being a matter of how much gold you have well your hammer output is always relevant because no matter what you buy you can still put your hammers towards something and unless it's like abysmally terrible you will finish something (laughs) right especially with trade routes uh if you're using them internally right but i was talking about find a way to make it so that you aren't able to completely substitute production for just gold buying i'm certainly not maintaining that you can completely substitute production with gold buying proportionately and consistently, gold ends up being more valuable than production. Not initially in the game, admittedly, but as the game progresses, oh man, gold becomes king. We get to the era in the multiplayer games when we're starting to get towards frigates and stuff, and it is always literally faster for me to buy the Navy as opposed to build it. Or alternatively, well, normally you would have built the, an upgrade because that's even yeah, more. Yeah, that's that that ridiculous. Margin. You build the yeah. gal- a bunch of galleys and quadrims or whatever, and then just yeah, spend the cost if, if to you have them working on infrastructure or something or other issues at that point, and then you have that swarm of galleys, and you just go, okay, upgrade, 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 upgrade. Oh, look at this massive navy! It's like 
Yeah, how come you're still building uh, quadrings? Shouldn't you be building frigates? Uh, well, I'm accumulating gold, and I'm up to square rigging minus one turn. So just let me get a few more, and then I'm going to upgrade. Forget even a professional army in the 50% discount. It's still cheaper to upgrade them with gold than to purchase them Yeah, outright. and then with that, the savings is ridiculous. Oh, and man. I guess that's an intentional design choice, but it's so bizarre to me like that it's intentionally more efficient to just upgrade stuff so to the point where you have not just a little bit, but massive incentive to build obsolete units intentionally before reaching the new attack. Well, a big part of that, too, is the fact that you've only got one upgrade to a unit about every other era. So difference in strength and production between the two units is that much higher than if you had a unit upgrade every single era. So Zarin made a suggestion that uh, what he would like to see is a mechanic come, uh, that in a sense is coming back from older games, where at present we can drag the entire world into war with us through alliance chains and joint wars, but I think we really ought to have the option to broker peace between two AI civs who are at war. For one thing, it's realistic. Peace is often brokered by a neutral third party rather than directly between the two belligerents. And for another, it would be nice to have an option for resolving conflicts between two civs you're on good terms with. For instance, in my last game, I had alliances with uh, Jedwiga and Philip, but they were at war with each other, which was straining our relationship. It would have been handy to have been able to negotiate an end to their war. And as um, Supremacy King points out in the first post after that, back in Smack, there was a feature where you could ask another faction to make peace with somebody that they're at war with currently. And... Correctly, he points out that there were times when that was really, really useful. And of course, uh, for people listening, Smack referring to Sid Meier's Alpha Centauri from the 1990s, probably, yes. possibly before some of our listeners were even born. But... <laughs> <laughs> you know, Dan's getting old when he keeps making that kind of reference all the time. But I'll ask you this uh, question, Mackie. The feature where you could request that a faction make peace with another faction, you're a resident Smack expert. Ish. <laughs> When you say request that a faction make peace with another faction, was it just through diplomacy and say we would like you to make peace with another faction and then they decide whether they're going to go off and do that and you don't see that? Like, you don't have a hand in that, right? Other than asking them to do it? And no, and I just, it was just one of the things you could ask for and they'd say yes or no and you didn't have a way like we do now in the, the later Civs diplomacy where you could sweeten it with a little bit of something. It was just a request and it depended on the relationship you had with them. So Even if then, they liked you enough, they might. But most of the time, eh. Even then, it sounds like you're still just going to one party or the other and basically yeah. binding them into Yeah, you're not I think properly what, mediating. I think what the poster's asking for and what I would like to see is some sort of actual multilateral negotiations where you're actually conferencing with both of the AIs and trying to find some deal that allows both of them to accept peace rather than just bribing one and the other just having to accept it. Well... Although the way it works in Civ 4, and it makes sense, is the one that was losing, if you tried to bribe that one to peace, it would say, we'd love to, but you have to contact them. Yes. So yeah. you had to bribe the nation that was winning to make peace in order to make peace. How and so the was... nation that was losing would certainly already want peace because the that AI evaluated that it was losing. Well, unless they had like a bunch of units that were just about to come out and do a counterattack. But curious, it's been so long since I played Civ 4 and I didn't really play ever play Civ 4 at a high level. So uh, how good was Civ 4 at determining who was winning and who was losing the war? Was it just a matter of whether or not cities had been captured or? It's about as quality as now. In other words, not very. 
I don't want to say it hasn't changed because the nature of the games has changed a lot from Civ 4 to Civ 6, but realistically, the way the AI evaluates it is pretty similar across these games and that it just looks at relative power doesn't care anything for a strategic situation except for maybe it'll acknowledge the fact that there's units near cities which was done even back then you have points assigned for like unit kills and points assigned for cities points assigned for nukes that kind of thing so and there was some evaluation there but it put a lot of weight on relative power even if the quality of the units was pretty disparate so you could have some situations where it would wrongly evaluate but you're going to get that even in a conferencing scenario because the ai will think it's either better or worse than it really is in position and that would still impact how it would behave in a mediation setting as well i think this would be hard on the ai too to make a, a conference thing whereas having the winner accept to stop the war because you're giving it something to stop the war is a lot more straightforward from an evaluation perspective when it's realistic, I mean, that's ultimately what you're going to have to do. If there's a clear winner and a clear loser, then in order to get the clear winner to cease pursuing the war, you're going to have to give them something that's worth more to them than whatever they think they're going to get out of pursuing the war to uh, its final conclusion. Um, yeah. You know, And I know it was always fairly easy to get the AI to go ahead and put down arms if things were relatively level and if there hadn't been anything happening in the war for a while, like 20 turns or so, and it yeah. kind of ground to a halt anyway, then they're just like, okay, yeah, whatever, this war not going anywhere but yeah i don't think that you necessarily it looks good from a realism standpoint to bring things to the table but if you actually understand how international conflict and deals and things like that work there you don't need in my opinion anything much more complicated than what we've used in passives to pick up what would end up on the conference table anyway <laughs> of course easier said than done i know but nice that this mechanic wasn't just well there's the mismediation mechanic, and the human is always using it between the AI. If you were fighting an AI to have another AI come to you and say, hey, we want to mediate your dispute, you need to end the war, that would also be beneficial. Plus, the question would be with the AI and even for yourself, thinking about how much am I willing to give one side or both sides in order to end their conflict because it's going to be advantageous to me. And I think the just going to the person who's winning, like in Civ Four, and giving them an incentive. Yeah, that's not mediation. That's well, that's bribing or placating or something. That's not. It's not mediating because you're not bringing all the parties in. It's just, hey, I got this person to agree to stop fighting with you. Maybe if we can get that into the game and that's working well, then we could talk about full-blown mediating a settlement, which would be nice. Stepping stones. Well, another thing, too, would be the idea of having multiple neutral parties involved. So you could have a situation where, I don't know, say Rome and Egypt are at war with each other. And then I get together with America and England and we're all like, hey, we will all give you X or Y in exchange for ending the war. So the burden of mediating that war and basically paying off or bribing the guy who's winning is not completely burdened onto one particular sieve. As you're describing this, I've got the sense of trying to incorporate into the game the concept of Congress of Vienna, where we get a whole bunch of nations within a set territory trying to come to an agreement on peace with anybody and everybody at the same time, which sounds fantastic. I would love that. I saw like the party pooper here. This needs to be, I don't know what implementation of that, though. Yeah, it'd be tough. Yeah. I mean, I would love to see some sort of robust multilateral diplomacy system in the game in general, not just for mediating wars, but also for doing like triangular trade deals and stuff like that. But UI would be difficult, like programming the AI to be able to do all that stuff would be difficult. Programming the AI to recognize whether or not a deal is a good deal would be difficult. Yeah, it definitely would not be easy. 
It'd be nice, but it wouldn't be easy. The Apostolic Palace forced peace between near nations. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, defy resolution. <sighs> uh, I feel like this is becoming more about Civilization Seven. <laughs> as opposed to at, at some point in Civilization Six. at this point. <laughs> yeah, or probably more like Civilization Eight or Nine. Wait, is that because there's too much pressure to make Civilization Seven, so they just call it Civilization Eight, Or do you mean it's going to take, you know... Oh, they're going to do the Windows trick? <laughs> it worked for Microsoft, and they're still around, therefore... Yeah, this is... <laughs> <laughs> Better but I, I'd also like to see some sort of mediation mechanic that you could do between civilizations and city-states. Right now, there's virtually nothing you can do to stop the just rampant AI aggression against city-states. And part of that's all the bonuses that the AIs get makes it a obvious, optimal play to just go eat all the city-states you can find. But yeah, it would be nice to be able to go to the Civ and the city-state and be like, hey, guys, you gotta end this. At least for ones where you're suzerain. Yeah, right. Exactly. Uh, you should at least be able to take over a defensive war to defend your freaking city-state yeah. when you're suzerain. That's a suzerain means. You're the overlord. Come on. Right, and it shouldn't just be a matter of I've got to send my military over there to smack down the aggressor, but I should also be able to go into diplomacy and be like, hey, look, we know we can't take you militarily, but we'll give you 20 gold per turn or whatever if you just let them live. Ultimatum. Give them an ultimatum. Yeah, and then again, going back to what I said earlier, maybe even getting other city-states to be like, yeah, well, we're going to fight you too if you don't stop being aggressive against this guy because we know we're next. Oh, that was always cute when that happened in Civ Five. I, I was just about to that. say, yeah. yeah. Well, the city-states would need more teeth in order for that to work. But It was cute. Yeah. It was cute. I mean, at least in Civ Five, they growled. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Heck, I would actually like to be able to see city states actually like be aggressive against each other because in you know Civ Five you always had them giving you those quests to attack the other city state, and I was like, why don't you just <laughs> do it yourself? Sometimes they did. Jason, 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 Jason. City states like to be wooed. I know they do. <laughs> yeah, it still likes to woo them at the end of a pointy army though. <laughs> uh, Boris uh, Gudenuff in the thread I'm talking about city states. As his third example, party number three tells all other civs that X continent or X collection of city-states is off-limits. I think to tie in what you were saying, Phil, it's like, these city-states are off-limits because I'm their suzerain, not because they're off-limits because I would like to be their suzerain at some point. No, you, you've got a defined, formally recognized investment in them. There was also talk about party number three acts diplomatically to bring parties number one and two to an agreement that stops their war. Parties one and two could be civs or city-states, except that now, when you end war with Civilization X, the war automatically ends with the city-state. Peace is automatically made. It's not that, oh, okay, I gotta go make peace separately with the city-states now, or just continue on fighting them. Yeah, no more separate peace, and no more immediate separate peace. No more of that. Yeah. In the chat, Monthar, a broker peace button could just bring up the trade screens for both of the warring civs. The broker could then pick the things each warring civ trades with each other until they both agree. I feel like that could work. I just got this vision of how it can be in diplomacy right now with the AI when you're trying to trade with them, say, an excess of their luxury. And like myself, I'm sitting there and I'm like, will you agree to one more gold? Yes. Will you agree to one more gold? Yes. Will you agree to one more gold? No. Okay, back down. And I know I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm microwing that big time. And I know sometimes in the cooperative games, uh, it's like, Dan, what are you doing? Nothing. Yeah, this aspect of UI is much more degenerate than the Eureka system. <laughs> they really need to fix this, <laughs> especially before they start introducing things that would complicate it further. 
<laughs> yeah, the, the big problem with uh, robust AI systems, if you go back and think about some of the older games in the 4X genre, like, say, Matt, you know, all the way back to, like, Master of Ryan 2 and Alpha Centauri, is when you give the player a whole bunch of levers that they can pull and the AI is an idiot, then what you're really doing is you're just giving the player more opportunities to exploit the fact that the AI doesn't really understand what the heck's going on in the game mechanics. And that's how we ended up, you know, in a world where in Civ 4, Soren Johnson gated a whole bunch of the uh, trade options behind technologies so that the player couldn't just exploit all those tricks from day one. Buzzing suggests a notion of diplomatic capital. If A respects me and B fears my economic sanctions, I could spend X influence to and put Y on the table as threats and rewards if they make a deal. Hey, that sounds familiar. (laughs) (laughs) I've said it before. Beyond Earth, I think, had some good ideas. They were just not in a very good overall game. There's a lot of stuff in Beyond Earth I wouldn't mind seeing Praxis try again. Or just brought over, yeah. The diplomatic capital and the fear and respect modifiers is is one of those things that I think should probably be re-examined at some point. Even Warscore would have been fine if it had the ability to compel peace and let you switch out what you're asking for. Yeah, I, I really think that the war score also needs to have an actual stated objective by the aggressor in order to really work. But yeah, and as you need, if, if need, not, need, need, need to be able to compel taste. Otherwise, it's junk. Yeah, right. But if there's in, not, in, with more than taking all of their cities. <laughs> right. But if, if there's not a situation where you state a specific objective and you've either completed that objective or failed to complete that objective, I really don't see a war score system really like working the way that it should work. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Canis Albuson in this in the chat also past guest at this like month or Dan would rather bully the city states. Well, yep. <laughs> <laughs> give me all your cash or you die. Uh, I missed that too. And then the buzzing's like, then bully them, put a threat on the table, and give them X amount of time to do what you want. I feel like, and see if we can kind of do that to a certain point. I can go and demand not of a city state, but a civ and say, uh, yeah, just give me all this gold per turn. I demand it. Nope. I feel like it would be nice to be able to combine that into one. It's like, give me all your gold right now, or it's immediate war. Or we could expand that to give me all of your gold or economic sanctions, or I'm going to close my borders with you or, or something. Well, an idea that I've like flirted with in the past, we've already got these mechanics where like the city-states and stuff can give the player like little quests to do. Maybe we should have mechanics where the human player and the other civs can actually give little quest sort of things to each other in order to gain favor and diplomatic relations. Oh, gosh, I thought it was going to be something like we should have a system where as the major civs, uh, we can all meet together and decide who's going to be the suzerain of what city-state, you know, just pretend to be Europe dividing up Africa or something. I grant you favor and protection. I mean, I could maybe see something like that working if you've got multiple civs that are constantly going back and forth between being the suzerain of a particular city-state. Just settle it once and for all. It's better in Civ 6 than in Civ 5 because at least it's not a continual gold sink for the city-state favor. Right. Number one. Number two, now especially with the governors, where it's just, guess what? I've got a governor here, and I reach its highest level of promotion, and now that acts as double the number. That, so far, has whatever the city-state was trying to do, they just kind of go, blah. Their major civ just go, blah, fine, whatever. Um, (laughs) At least in Civ 6, when it comes to the city-states, the civs aren't going to the extreme of absolutely must have this particular city-state that I'm in control of. At least it's not to their detriment anymore. Yeah, although the fact that envoys are used for literally nothing other than sending to city-states means that you do end up with those situations every now and then where when there are two civs that really want one particular city-state, they just keep going back and forth for a really long time before one of them finally like gives up on it. 
because there's nothing else for you to do with the envoy other than to send it to a city state. So it's like, well, I'm going to try to be suzerain. Otherwise, it's not really doing much for me. I would be interesting if envoy load on somebody else's city state to flip it by surprise. Yeah, yeah, you could do that as well. You can save them up. But I'm I'm wondering if there could maybe be room in the game for envoys actually having diplomatic functions with the other civs instead of just with the city states. What do you make it do, though? Like, I don't know. That would work even if the players are human. Yeah, because we have the spies right now to increase the diplomatic visibility level. Unless you take that function away from the spies and give it to the envoys. Well, I was thinking more along the lines of, again, going referring back to the diplomatic capital idea from Beyond Earth, maybe somehow combining that function with the envoys. But yeah, I'm just kind of like thinking out loud right now. So don't pay too much heed. Now you can like start forcing trades and stuff, even if the player doesn't agree to it. You just make a trade for resources or something. That would be interesting, though. I mean, maybe. I, yeah, if that you're could, that diplomatically it, influential on the world stage, then maybe you do have the power and authority to do that. I mean, it'd be a little silly to force like a war declaration, but if you took trade out of even the player's hands when it comes to both, like access resources and stuff, that could be interesting because then you would see it even in competitive environments. You would just have to make sure it's not broken from a balance perspective. Support the ongoing Polycast Patreon campaign. Collective achievements. Personal incentives. Month-to-month commitment. A thank you to lead patron Candace Albinus and all other supporters of the show through this measure. For more information, visit thepolycast.net slash Patreon. Call Call in in today. today. In North America, the number is 301-637-7659. That's 301-637-POLY. In Europe, 44-121-288-7659. That's 44-121-288-POLY. The only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. For more information on Polycast, our sibling shows Modcast, Revcast, and Turncast, or about Polycast in general, log on to the series' official website at thepolycast.net. It would be fun is to somebody's win their land and oh, oh. and not Mackie's about to sneeze again sorry uh, Florida internet uh, yeah yeah I'm knocking at the Florida internet again. no I'm not about to sneeze again but Phil's internet is behaving again yeah about it it's almost my ISP I don't know speaking of P I, I, I got nothing I got nothing <laughs> okay Jan <laughs> is that it's time to wrap this up because I need to pee is that it so I'm detecting the different kind of live stream anyway Wow. <laughs> there you go. Next time you have to do that, you can say, excuse me, i got to go take a live stream. <laughs> Dan makes here. comments that he would not have made years ago, for sure. <laughs> I, like, when I started on the show, I don't think I would have heard a live stream joke like that from Dan. No. I just don't no. think it would have happened. This has been episode 309 of Polycast. I have to go take a live stream. Our uh, participants today have been Phil, the Bean team. I will come to you with all the meat of peace. Makalua. I'm putting colonies all over your chocolate and coffee. Hope you don't mind. Jason, Mega Bears fan. All the technical difficulties are Phil's fault this week. Blame him. And our host, Dan Q. Do you enjoy my loyalty? Pressure. Show you pressure. On the pressure. <laughs> <laughs>
Thank you, Queen. <laughs> I'm Martin Alvito. I'm about to go outside and go melt into a puddle. Wait, and you're going to be a saltwater puddle, right? Probably. And you'd still agree to come back on the show, right? Of course. This wasn't the last straw or anything like that? Oh, no. I've, I, I mean, I've done this before. I knew what I was getting into. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have offered you a straw. That's environmentally unfriendly. Um, oh, yeah. There's legislation to ban those in some countries. Wow. Just realizing, Martin, you've been a recurring guest on this show for seven years. Yep. <laughs> Which is why Dan's question was hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> Would you agree to come back still? There you go. Much. Have a good one. Record date June 2nd, 2018. Civilization 4, 5, Beyond Earth, and 6 clips. Copyright Take 2 Interactive. Copyright Civilized Communication at civcom.net.